0: Yeah, Two
1: twins, <laughs> Hey, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah Yeah, 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 oh. yeah, 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 yeah. The, the, not to be confused with the yeah, yeah, yeahs. Whatever happened to the yeah, yeah, yeahs? I actually, I thought they were, I thought they were a great band. I like, I like Karen O. I like the sort of nerdy guy with the glasses, the drummer and that sort of like pre hipster, cool, creative guitar player. I thought they were kind of awesome. What happened to those guys?
1: Uh, the yeah, yeah, yes. I never got into them like you did. I I don't. I remember the name Karen O, and I remember they had, o, a, yeah. they had a record that you loved. I can't remember. Well, I had, they had a couple, I,
0: and I think that they tried to like turn her into a solo thing, ish. Like that was the game plan for her, and then it kind of didn't go as planned. I don't know. They they were in this weird, they were in that weird uh sort of mid two thousands time period where things were really going pop. In fact, I remember they started out as a real stripped down, you know, kind of thing. And then by the end they were like doing pop records, you know, so so we'll shift away from that. That's our, that's our yay. Yeah, yeah, as yeah, Segment. Uh, well, <laughs> which was not, not exactly planned, uh, as Check a little... back
1: in with us for episode 246, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> where we'll be dissecting the AAS yeah, 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 entire catalog. Um, but, you know, uh, pivoting to our featured group, uh, here on episode 51, we're on five one, buddy. It almost feels like we're starting a new era you know, starting a new chapter, even though we're not, it's the same, same bozos, same deal on the deal here, right? We're not doing anything special on the deal here, but, uh, an important band. I think, you know, we can agree a band that, uh, we probably didn't anticipate taking fifty-one episodes to get to, but listen, Frankie goes to Hollywood's important. I mean, we, uh, you know, you want to you want to make sure you you chip off all the important groups before you get to Tool. I think, right?
1: No doubt, Frankie yeah. goes to Hollywood is important. And T, just relax, man.
0: Yeah, mm, <laughs> you right. better, you better. All right, well, why don't we uh, why don't we relax even further here and uh, get into our round and round. No, now that you've, uh, you know, really loosened up, why don't you give <laughs> us, uh, what you've been
1: listening to lately, as far as the long play format, what do you got, bud? I've been listening to an now. I really want you to check out and a band that is so underrated and that is the band ocean size and the, uh, I think it was their second album. Well, I assume
0: they're named after the Jane's addiction song. So I'm already kind of on board, you
1: know, probably, I mean, probably their second album was Eflores, uh, and every album they've done has been fantastic. They're, they're kind of a prog, modern Prague 2000s sort of deal with uh, you know kind of like shearing guitars and just everything's really big and thoughtful. They're just an awesome band. And you should check them out. Everybody should check them out. They're really, really, really good. I don't think they're together anymore. Unfortunately, like all great bands. But uh, I've listened to that one a lot. And for, for good reason. Also, the first album by Iona, uh, another Prague kind of Celtic band that I was able to see when they were still around. And uh, I scored a copy of their very first album, which is awesome. They have a guitarist named Dave Bainbridge, who's, again, underrated as the theme today. I mean, he's like one of the most underrated guitarists, I think, in the world. And then lastly would be uh, Ozzy Osbourne's Bark at the Moon, which was the first album without Randy Rhodes. This was with Jake E. Lee. It's very 80s. It's got a lot of synthesizer, which I love, of course, in Ozzy's music. And again, kind of an underrated Ozzy album. It, it, it the production is incredibly 80s, especially the drum sound. But you know, the title track is cool, and it's got some some nice slower ballads. And it's just an Ozzy record, but one that you know, if you look at the whole Ozzy catalog, "Bark at the Moon" is not incredibly celebrated. But so three underrated aspects. Of some really outstanding music. Did you
0: pay, you know, nine hundred dollars for the aussie full studio colored vinyl box set that came out a couple of years ago? I
1: did not. I know someone on this uh, on this, in this show who did. <laughs> what? Who? who? who All right. S- just since you brought it up, though, you <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna be so pissed. Okay, are you ready? Not really. Go ahead, though. My copy of Mark at the Moon, which I acquired recently, is the Japanese import vinyl pressing with the uh, OB strip. Of course. It also comes with a set. And this is if you really find the the Japanese pressing that's really sought after, yeah. you get the one that comes with a set of Aussie tattoos. Ooh. So it's got insert OB strip, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. The great vinyl. But as part of this special package for Japan, they did like a sheet of like six Ozzy Osbourne related tattoos. So are you going to,
0: um, you know, use them? Are you going to apply them? Or are you going to uh,
1: just save them? Like what's the game saying on the Definitely sa- Ozzy tattoos? Definitely save them though. It's a little tempting to use them, but <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, everyone's different as a collector. When, when I get anything that's collectible, I don't, use it. Like I don't put posters on the wall. If a poster comes with an album, unless I have two or three of them. Well, you're
0: failing you know to I mean? tell everybody about the shirtless Phil Collins poster you have on your wall. So I yeah. actually disagree with that.
1: Yeah. 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 So no, I don't plan on using the tattoo. Well, maybe you and I just get together. we we'll have a little Aussie tattoo party and use them. Yeah. I'd, I'd uh, be down with that. Yeah, exactly. See, what do you got for running around? <laughs> You know, I've got
0: three brand new albums, actually. It's been a good um, month or so for releases and trying to get caught up. But three of them that are kind of on the radar here lately are the first is by the band AFI. And, you know, AFI is kind of a, I don't know, I guess they're a emo thing, rock, punky. I don't know. I I don't know exactly. They kind of fall into that certainly they've been part of the emo conversation. I mean, they've been around for like 20 years, so, but they've certainly created some longevity. I think their music is a bit more layered than just kind of whiny emo stuff. And I, I it's a band I've always really liked. I love the singer's voice and, uh, and they have a brand new album called bodies, which is quite good. I'm still kind of getting through it, but, uh, I know, I, I think you guys, you like those guys a little bit too nub right over the years. And, and it's a good, it's a good one to check out if
1: you haven't yet. I really liked that they had a great two album run, which was Sing the Sorrow. Was that the name of the album? Yeah, it sounds like, right. yeah. And December Underground, the, yeah. the, that back to back was, that's the first one is the one that had Girls Not Grey on it, which I you know always thought was a great single. Yeah. But they kind of caught fire during those two albums. And then I haven't kept up with them since the way that you have, but it's 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 a great band to be into, man, for sure.
0: Yeah, that's a that's one of those uh, Interscope Jerry Finn efforts. Was December Underground really good album? The second is a band we haven't heard from in a bit, and that's Modest Mouse. Uh, although Brendan Bayless obviously has heard of them, his Man Crush. I know I'm a little jealous of Isaac Brock on that one, but not uh, to be the,
1: confused with your Man Crush, who is Brendan Bayless.
0: Yeah, that's right, the man himself. This album is called The Golden Casket. I'm still digging into it sounds pretty good. They haven't gone festival rock, which is good. I think Isaac's better than that. I don't think we'll see that from him. But it is layered and creative and has some lushness to it and um so far I like it. And the third is from uh one of my favorite bands going way back. These are all bands that go way back and this is the band James out of the UK and the album is called All the Colors of You. So, three new releases but from three bands that have been around for some time and Boy, are we about to talk about a band that has also been around for some time. Uh, These guys actually got, I think it was technically the late 80s, um, very, very late 80s when they got together. And obviously, you know, a band that has really evolved since their formation, since their early recordings into a true prog metal you know project to say the least but one that's extremely creative extremely interesting and and I think a pretty important band all in all nub not just in their musical output but in their artistic output and in their way of always doing things their way and sometimes that's for better or for worse right um you know these guys have are not without their um Idiosyncrasies, I think, as a group. Head
1: case moments. I'll say it more blandly.
0: And moments where, you know, they've done things that are a bit more non traditional in terms of a commercial band, but they have found a way to do this in a way that's completely on their terms, but has also been extremely successful and extremely lucrative and very genuine along the way. You just don't see a lot of that anymore. And, and and certainly these bands that are that were big in the '90s that have found ways to create longevity, you're often seeing them do so because they are pivoting into a you know overtly commercial direction. You know, I think of like Weezer gone festival rock, or you know these bands that have found ways to kind of either reemerge or stick around or sustain this success. And oftentimes they're having to change what they are. Well, these guys have really certainly not changed what they are over time. And there's something to be said for that.
1: I'll try and sum it up like this. Tool has been extremely good for the music industry, extremely good. And just as much so in 2020 in 2021 as it was in 1996, right? So tool has been extremely good for the music industry. It's taught lessons. It's been a leader. It's, you know, been exceptional in a number of ways. Tool has not always been good for tool and tool has not always been good for its fans. And that has to do with the overthought, the, the taking multiple, multiple years to make albums, but then even little things on top of that that go the other direction, like. All of a sudden now being a band that plays, you know, arenas and charges most obscenely high amounts of money for a ticket. They are capitalists. There's no question about it. Is it worth it to see them? Yeah. Because they're that amazing. It's just frustrating that they don't do more and frustrating that, you know, Maynard spends his time on these side projects that kind of suck, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Perfect circle was, was great at first. I mean, that first perfect circle album was terrific and they haven't been half as good since, you know, and aside from that puss and a lot of this other crap, it's like, you guys are getting up there in age. Can you put a little bit more into tools? So, and even though I think they believe very strongly in what they do and how they do it, I I think in the last few years, there have been some things that have, have made me feel a little more uneasy about the band. That's for sure.
0: Well, let's uh, let's, Let's rewind back to a time where you probably, you know, were okay with just about everything that this band was doing and talk about, uh, uh tonight's album and let's dig into it on the nerdy deets Don't dirt cheap. hail.
1: You want some dirty deets? Yeah. You want some dirty deets?
0: All right. Uh, lateralis was released on May 15th, 2001. Hey, happy birthday, dad. Right? May 15th. Oh yeah. Happy birthday, dad. That's right. And that's the <laughs> day after uh Mrs. Tauf's birthday. So, you know, happy birthday to her, too. Oh, that's right. So,
1: I'm sure Mrs. Tauf bought Lateralis Alice for her uh for her <laughs> what would that be? Like a 23rd birthday or something like that. Yeah. Uh, unlikely. Unlikely.
0: Um probably went out and got some Broadway soundtrack instead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So six months before 9/11, this is uh, Tool's third studio album. Now they did have an EP in there as well called "Opiate," which certainly part of their early work, but this was really their third major label effort. Notable that uh, this was also produced by David Bottrell, who also produced Anima, so some familiarity there. Bottrell is a obviously pretty renowned rock producer. He did all the sort of modern Peter Gabriel work. He he produced a couple of King Crimson, this 90s Crimson outfit. He produced a couple of their records. And then more notably an album that I know we both love that's Diorama by Silver Chair. And some of that later work by that band. And obviously Diorama is a production masterpiece in a lot of ways. So he certainly- also did
1: like the the end of all things to come by Mudvayne. I mean he was yeah. he was pretty hot during this time.
0: Yeah, no question. And and obviously a guy that when it came to putting together a rather, um, dynamic rock album knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, the record is 79 minutes long. I think that's as long as a compact disc allowed at the time. So, uh, obviously, um, and, and there's a couple of, uh, of noise junkers as you often get with tool records. We won't talk a lot about those today, but, but aside from that, you know, you're getting a, a good solid length of music here as you often do from these guys this was on volcano records nubs who are the uh, two other notable artists on you've been so bad at trivia the last couple episodes let's see if you can nail this one let's see if you can sp- <laughs> let's see if you can spot this one who are the two notable bands off of volcano records
1: uh, i'm pretty sure veruca salt was could have been but they're not notable enough okay uh, um <laughs> yeah uh and i could be wrong about that for sure yeah volcano records 311 yes sir 311 is one of them very nice and nobs the second one is weird al yankovic so oh. um <laughs> I mean, you know my thought was failure but they're they were on slash right um, uh failure was on slash yeah that's yeah. right that's right. weird al yankovic remember a
0: naked gun when uh when, when he when he's like oh, weird al yankovic is here and and that's uh when frank draven thinks <laughs> The crowd is going nuts for him. And uh, and he has that quick cameo where he's like waving and signing autographs and stuff.
1: Great naked gun humor on that that scene. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Movie's amazing. Kind of rediscovered a real love for Frank Drebin and all that. It's, yeah, that was a good run. This uh, debuted, uh, to your point, Nubs, on commercial success, which this certainly had. This debuted number one on Billboard and sold over half a million copies in its first week. It was a real evolutionary point for the band creatively. So, to couple that with this commercial success, and obviously, you know, with the exception of Schism, there weren't really any other hits on the record. Now, Schism was a huge single, no question, got a lot of radio airplay. And it was a song that really um, captured at the right time a more commercial, radio friendly audience. That song actually won a Grammy. Uh, for best uh, metal performance they didn't even have to give the grammy back now they were able to keep it so um and i don't know i don't know what this is worth nub but the rock and roll hall of fame did a definitive 200 list of albums for for whatever it's worth and uh Alice was ranked 123rd on that list and there's something to be said for that i guess
1: i don't know it means jack shit to me for an organization that it took how long did it take them to get rush in there? Like 20 years or something?
0: Like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah too long. Yeah. Way too long. Um, this was around this was an interesting time, obviously. This was when Napster was in full effect. And Tool, I don't, you know, and they've always had a sense of humor about what they do. Um, they, they actually announced a a fake album with a bunch of fake song titles and and a bunch of people on Napster started creating these phony files of these tool song titles that they had released and people were posting them and downloading them. And, you know, I don't know if they did that just to screw with everybody, but it was kind of a, in today's world, you release an album and you don't even have to do anything. It shows up on your Spotify or your Amazon music subscription or whatever it is. You know, this was back in the day where, you know, people were trying to get their mitts on these songs early and ended up getting duped by the band, you know, weeks before the release with, all these phony song titles that they released, which is kind of funny and very main nerd and very tool. This changed the entire presentation of the band in terms of their prog approach and in terms of, in a lot of ways, their live presentation. Now, we had seen them, you know, prior to this in a more stripped down fashion, but this I think was the point where the band really created their longevity. Anima was a great record that had come out five years before. Um, and remember at this time it was like, Oh my God, they went five years, like, damn. And then they went another five years before 10,000 days. And then they went like 13 years before fear inoculum, which came out a couple of years ago. So, you know, uh, we, we all were thinking at this time that five years was an eternity to go without a new record. And, you know, obviously they've, they've, uh, in typical tool fashion
1: proved that they can go even longer if we let them. And it's a good point. Cause even the distance between, uh, undertow and Inamo was like, felt long. remember that was very yeah. long wait. And what was that three years or four? Yeah, it years? was like three years. And you're
0: right. At that time, that was a pretty, pretty long while, you know, typically if you were if you were a top band and a top seller, you know you were releasing a record every two years. you know, you'd release the album, you'd tour and then you'd record. you know so uh, definitely a unique approach here of taking their time in the studio, and when you kind of get a feel for the complexity and the intricacy of of the material, it makes sense. you know, you can't whip up an album like Letter Alice in in six months. it takes time to compose, to perform, and to record. Another thing you really heard come on in Lateralis is sort of the emergence of... And Danny Carey had always had a pretty strong influence on the band. And obviously, you know, he was a strong point of the group from the very beginning, even going back to Opiate and Undertow. But in terms of, you know, turning things into a real experiment related to Time signatures and sort of tribal rhythms and these sorts of things. You know, Danny Carey obviously, you know, really made his mark on this record, as did the bass player Justin Chancellor. You know, he you can really hear on Lateralis, he starts to take lead on a lot of the riffing, on a lot of the thematics within the songs. And very often with this band, you know, the the bass is providing the lead and the guitar is sort of filling in. The thing I've I've always loved about this band is it's a true group effort. I mean, without one piece of it, it either wouldn't be right, or it wouldn't be the same. And that's really the case on every single song. You know, you're not seeing trends where one piece is leading more than the other. And, you know, there are some sequences and some moments where you're getting something really good from Adam or you're getting something really good from Maynard or certainly on this one from Chancellor and Danny, you're getting some good stuff in many moments, but it always feels like a collective. And that's got to be part of the approach of composition and development where these guys were really, really thoughtful, really thoughtful at times heady. And of course, you've noted sort of the math element of a lot of this it's a collection of very smart musicians that seemingly always end up on the same page. Doesn't it nub?
1: Yeah, it does. And, you know, get ready for the Justin Chancellor love fest, because I am just such a huge fan of him as an artist and the way he plays. But you get the vibe that Danny Carey is like the reason we still have tool, you know, because Without Danny Carey, my thoughts are that, you know, Maynard would be out like making wine and Adam Jones would be like, you know, running a graphic design firm. And I think they're doing that anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but and right. Justin Chancellor, you know, be in Australia, you know, playing bass for any band that wanted him and, And Danny's probably the guy that says, Hey guys, like maybe we should rehearse today or do some writing. You know, it just feels like he's the, the anchor that kind of keeps the thing stable and, and makes things happen. I think that's fair. And, and, you know, every member
0: has kind of brought their own need to the band historically. One of the things that Adam Jones, the guitar player always brought was sort of the artistic element in a lot of the kind of visual nature of things, he directed a couple of the music videos. Uh, I'm sure he had a hand in the album artwork in a few cases, but this artwork was actually developed by Alex Gray. And it's it's important in how unique it was at the time. You know, this was, you know, still at a time where you were getting a lot of just regular jewel cases and you were getting... You know some of the cardboard sleeves, and 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 this was, a, I think, as we were just coming off of some of the digipack type ideas that were happening around that time, but but Tool was always on the forefront of, you know, album artwork and still are even fear inoculum had some stuff that was pretty amazing, but I just want to
1: say how excited I am that you're talking about. Yeah, I know. Years of giving me so much grief about my obsession with album art and packaging. Here we go. (laughs) Yeah. You
0: know, I knew I was putting this section together. I was like, all right, well I know at least I'll like this one, but you know, this, uh, they were using this, um, transparent sort of, you know, film, almost plasticky material providing the, the booklets and the liner notes. And, you know, things were meant to sort of line up different multiple sheets because the whole concept visually around lateralis is around sort of the, the body form, that colorful sort of transparent, you know, uh, human body form. Um, and, and it's a pretty interesting and, and pretty wild um, piece when you go purchase it and you bring it home and you start sorting through it, it's like, whoa, this is pretty cool. Um, and kind of goes hand in hand that the visual nature of it really goes hand in hand with the music properly. And, and they did that, you know, with their most recent release, as I mentioned, they certainly did that with 10,000 days. These guys have, and even Anima had kind of a interesting, um, approach to the, Artwork and the liner
1: notes and the tribute to Bill
0: Hicks and all those. I mean, these were things.
1: Well, that, remember that the item I had. It did the it did the animation. Remember, you'd move it, and then, yeah, you're right. They were breaking this ground before Lateralis. I mean, shit. He ten thousand days had it had a set of like goggles built into the <laughs> That's right. sleeve, which by the way opened from the top and the yeah. bottom. So right. it's just and it can't. It won't fit in any that though. The symbolism that I loved of the ten thousand days packaging was it didn't fit in, in any storage unit. And then they took it a step further. Fear Inoculum has, it's got like literally a video inside of it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? So yeah. yeah, they've always pushed it in in some of the you know most remarkable ways in, in rock music history. Very
0: much so. And even back in the undertow days, I mean, their their music videos and some of their visual treatments um, on stage, granted it, it, it sort of evolved more as we got to this point, but you know they were always doing things uh, from a visual standpoint, an artistic standpoint, and certainly a, an album artwork and packaging standpoint that were extremely unique. And and Lateralis was a notable part of that. The last thing I'll touch on is is something that we don't talk a lot about, which is lyrics. And there are probably a handful of artists where I actually do enjoy keying in on the lyrical content and and, and who I feel really bring. Uh, something that needs to be noticed and something that needs to be uh, respected in terms of kind of the lyrical approach. So, PFO, I know you'll appreciate this one, buddy. You know, I, I'm always fascinated by the the thematics uh, of of Maynard's lyrics, and I feel like every album does have its own tone. Now, things are very abstract, and you know, he's I don't I don't know that there's a lot there that's coming across as deeply personal, but there are certainly some things that are being communicated in a metaphoric sense and in a abstract sense that I always find really interesting. And one of the things I always notice when you kind of look back at their catalog is every album kind of has its own kind of lyrical tone. And, you know, Animas was one that was pretty, you know, angry and pretty edgy and pretty graphic. And then we had Lateralus in Ten Thousand Days and Furinoculum, and and you kind of get a sense for how things progressed from there. The thing I've always noticed, Nubs, and I'm not sure how much you've dug into it, but the music on Lateralus is very uh, complex and and rather dark, but the lyrical content is almost sort of hopeful. Like uh, Maynard's really singing a lot about almost relationship type concepts and concepts around things being fairly optimistic and things being fairly, fairly hopeful. And it's over this sort of darker backdrop. Then, you know, five years later, 10,000 days came out and musically that to me feels a little lighter. You know, there are some moments that are a little bit more upbeat. There are some moments that are a little bit more sort of major keyed and but the lyrics are freaking depressing, right? So, so I always feel like there are these dichotomies going on of, you know, him wanting to, you know, bring a certain lyrical tone that in some ways complements and in some ways almost artistically clashes in a very intentional way with what's being done musically. But I've always found that as intricate and complex, and in some cases dark, Musically, Lateralus can come across that lyrically. There's actually a lot of positivity. I've I've found. Do you ever get that vibe, or do you do you dig into Maynard's uh, lyrical approach much at all?
1: Well, to, like you, if there's any band that I pay a little bit of attention to on this topic, it's Tool because I I do think lyrically they're very interesting. I I think it's an excellent observation. I would say that Einema is in the category of the Ten Thousand Days, where the the music's a little brighter, but lyrically it is so dark. Oh yeah. you know. <laughs> I mean, and so I think you're right. I think that's been a theme, you know, from at least that point forward where maybe that more dim the music, the brighter the lyrics and, you know, vice versa. And that plays into the band's sense of irony, you know, and tools always been kind of one of the masters of, of using irony as a tool, pun intended. In terms of how they do their work, how they produce. We were going to do it at some point, you know, at some point. Exactly. (laughs) In terms of how their albums are produced, how they're designed, song structure, you know, the lyrics, everything has this really sneaky, slithering sense of humor running through it that you have to find and you have to kind of look for it. That irony is certainly there in the exact traits that you are describing. So I like it. It's a good read. Well said. Let's get to the wonder stories, buddy.
0: Nub, let's have it. How did you, uh, how did you
1: become part of the tool army? As they say, Yeah, the one thing they have in common with kiss, they both apparently have armies (laughs) overpriced fan clubs that they call armies. Yeah. As we referenced at the beginning, it, it, it can't be unnoticed when you talk about Tool to talk about commercial success. This is an MTV band and people don't remember that because it's so long ago. But Tool got its start on MTV and I learned of Tool on MTV. And it was like Headbangers Ball sort of stuff, you know, like later night playing the Sober video. That song was a, a Video hit. It was a radio hit. The video was stunning. I, I think that was the, the first taste of Adam Jones' aesthetic. But uh, that's how I got into Tool. Man was through the radio and MTV. And who would have ever thought that with this band? I mean, if you told if there, there are any kids today who are into Tool and you tell them that you discovered them on MTV and the radio, they'd be like, "Huh?" But it, it's the most incredible part of the Tool story and my Tool story is just the way that commercial success boosted this band. So you knew them. You know, nowadays, this would be one of those bands that you discover and you have to sort of find. And so discovered them through mainstream outlets, went and saw them play a sold out show at the state theater as referenced on previous podcasts, the evening that you discovered failure. (laughs)
0: Right. I remember that one um, probably more for the failure aspect than the tool aspect, but it was a great show.
1: For sure. And then saw them again on Lollapalooza and that was that was probably the moment for me for me where I was like, okay, this band is something really different because of the theatrics and the, just the way they hit the stage and the way that they sounded. I mean, that's the thing that that has kept me coming back to Tool. Is this band live sounds so so great? Yeah, yeah, they do. And the reason for that, we'll get into it when we look at the albums. Here, is they don't they really don't do a lot of overdubbing. And they're all able to play and reproduce exactly what they do. Now they, they use a lot of effects and pedals and like, you know, it's not like I wouldn't call their music like, you know, pure in terms of the sonic aesthetic that they go for. And they reproduce live brilliantly what they do on the album. And that includes Maynard with his vocals. So th- that's the, the origins of it. And then just, you know, bought every album. The story of item is kind of cool. Cause we, we, we bought that album on a school trip. We went to Washington DC and that's where I bought the cassette and just listened to it over and over and over again. And the fascination for tool built, the only thing that's gotten in the way of, of being a huge tool fan is tool. The fact that they've only put out five albums in 30 years. I mean, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty simple wonder story for a very complex band and, been a huge fan since and as as most musicians and most music lovers, if you're not kind of a if you're not a soldier in the tool army, you know, something probably ain't right. So I don't know, T your wonder story can't be that different from that, but I know you've had a couple of unique experiences. So what do you got?
0: <laughs> well, I think I've mentioned it before, but what I remember about that state theater show, besides of course, failure, was Maynard came out and the the entire show, he just walked around in a circle. And it was not a big stage. The state theater is not a big stage. And, you know, every now and again, he'd stop when he had to yell or scream or whatever. But, you know, during instrumental sections in between songs, while he was talking to the crowd, he just walked around in this circle and and I could still see it. You know, this was 1990. This would have been what?
1: 1993. That this, we saw this. Yeah. 94, maybe. uh, Maybe 94. Yeah. The album was 93. It could have been 94. Yeah. And I remember I don't know if you remember this part but he came
0: out and he said you know they played one or two songs and he said all right listen um we're going to do this really fast tonight cuz my favorite band the Jesus Lizard is playing St. Andrew's Hall a few blocks away and I want to get this done and go see them so you know so we're not going to screw around too much tonight and you know this was like a band on its first tour like still kind of climbing a little bit here trying to get notoriety and those type of things and i just remember that being so bold it was like wow like that's pretty cool it's like, like
1: painfully transparent yeah it's like guys, and remember like, you know this is like a year out from guns and roses and metallica and yeah. all of the antics and ridiculousness of that tour and that that's what you expected from rock stars not for a guy to get up and say hey by the way like you know we're gonna make this quick because my favorite band is playing down the street Right. Know? right the first song
0: I ever heard from tool that really captured me was opiate. And I, I was, uh, this was my freshman year in high school and I was dating this older girl and, and she was like hot and cool and liked cool music and all that. And, and she popped in opiate. And I remember like, it was a moment for me, you know, I've described a few different song moments, but that one was big for me. I remember hearing that and being like, I knew sober and I knew, you know, I mean, at that point you kind of knew prison sex and some of these like tool songs that were out and were popular, but hearing opiate and realizing that this was something that they did before undertow and that this was something that, you know, had this groove and this sort of pop sensibility to it. And it was like, Oh man, these guys are, you know, these guys are for real. And then of course, you know, Anima came out and everything blew up, but that was kind of the first moment for me. And it couldn't have been that much before Anima uh, was released, but it certainly was before where, you know, I I really took notice uh, of them as a band. The, the many, uh, live shows. I mean, I think, I don't know if you've kept count. I've probably seen them 20 times. I would guess,
1: um, tool. Yeah. 20. Yeah. Oh, geez. I I, I think from Undertown. I didn't know they've been around that much. I th- I think I've seen him like five times. Okay.
0: Well, and the thing that's always notable is you know what kind of Maynard you're about to see, and you know things now have gotten to the point where he doesn't do the character move as much. But I remember one year at a Lollapalooza, he came out and he was a preacher, you know, and he had a reverend collar on, and he was like doing these preaching bits in between songs. They're actually really funny. One year he came out just completely covered in purple paint head to toe. And all he was wearing was boxer shorts. So he was all purple with white boxer shorts on. It was kind of amazing. Um, he, he, he was like a construction worker at one point. He had like the, the, uh, um, reflective, whatever safety vest and the hard hat and all that. I mean, you know, it's and always the farmer too. I don't know if you ever seen The that. farmer. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, you know, it's always kind of, uh, there has always been you used a good word irony, but certainly a tongue in cheekness to this band. They really don't take themselves too seriously and they could, I mean, they're good enough. They're heady enough. They're complicated enough, but They've always been, and I think this is part of what has created their longevity, is that they've always had a touch of humor in what they do. And while they've been pretentious in some ways, more, I think, in their approach and in their sort of band logistics, I don't think they've been pretentious in their attitude and in their presentation. One of the shows I'll always remember is on 10,000 Days, I was living in New York City at the time. And they were playing two nights at Carnegie hall. And to your point about the way this band sounds, I mean, they sound incredible. They, they would sound incredible in a, in a warehouse, uh, let alone at a theater that's the, you know, built for acoustics in that way. And I remember this was like early in the StubHub days. And I remember it's, you know, the show sold out in four minutes or whatever. And, And I went on StubHub and, and, and paid $200 to sit up in the balcony and see them. And I remember being like, I mean, I was totally broke at the time. And I remember being like, oh my God, am I really going to spend $200 on a concert? You know, and and this was 2005 (laughs) or six. And now that's cheaper than their face. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, now you're spending $200 to see like, you know, everybody. So, and of course you're spending 300 to see tool. Yeah, that's right. And if you go on StubHub, it's $1,000 rather than, you know, so it really, uh, it really, you know, made my tummy hurt for a few seconds that I had to pull the trigger on a $200 ticket. But, uh, you know, it was well worth it. And seeing that band at at Carnegie Hall was pretty amazing. So I I was thinking that maybe uh, before we get to the record, we just get in a quick top five. I think these guys, while they've only put out a handful of albums, are top five
1: worthy. What do you think? I am into a top five. The cool thing about the top five for tool is that, uh, it's five songs, but it lasts uh, 120 minutes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, why don't we go back and forth? What do you got in your top five, buddy? So do you want to do, sometimes we do these random order. You want to count down five to one with one being the best. What do you think?
0: Well, for these, I mean, mine's kind of more randomized. So, uh, you know, but you can go in order if you'd like.
1: One thing that's important to you is that, uh, Sometimes we try and ignore the album that we're looking at when we do the top fives. Yeah. I, I can't do that. All. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've, awesome.
0: I've got a couple too. It's all good. <laughs>
1: all right. Cool. So uh, for my number five, I'm going to go with Vicarious, the opener off of 10,000 Days. Yeah. And uh, any tool song that just opens with Justin Chancellor doing something unique on the bass, interlocking with Adam Jones, it, it's going to be a good sign. And, the album, we're about to talk about is, is certainly a good, a good example of that. But Vicarious to me is just a perfect tool opener. It's got the kind of, you know, winding intro with the interlocking rhythms. And then it opens up into some really dramatic lifts. And Maynard's voice is reaching some pretty uh, fantastic heights. And I just love Vicarious. So that's my number five. Well, I, let's just say that's my first one. How about that?
0: Well, and a nice uh, connection to Lateralis in that uh, Vicarious also features five beats per measure, which obviously yes. we're going to talk a lot about today as we dig into the tracks. You know, mine, I, I unintentionally actually did put it in order. So I'll kind of go back in order with you. So for number five, I have Numa, which is off uh, Fear Inoculum. This was their most recent release and the second track on that record. And you know this is a longer piece. it's like 11, 12 minute type of a deal, and I, I I think easily the strongest point of fear inoculum and certainly one of the better things that they've ever put together. Um, but track two on their most recent album Numa is uh is a top fiver for me, just an, just a, a just a ride, just one of those tool songs where you just you know you feel like you uh are getting off a roller coaster when you're done with it and seeing it live is pretty incredible as well as we got to um, about a year and a half ago when they
1: came through Detroit nubs, what's number four, number four, you know, all of these really could contend for my favorite tool piece. And this one included, and that is eulogy. Second track off of anima. Yeah. The intro is a little long. In fact, in my, uh, in my digital version of the song, I have to admit, and I'm, I don't like admitting this, but I, I created a little, uh, nubs edit where I edited out maybe the first minute and a half of that intro. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. I I love see, it. I edit, it sets a see, mood. I, see, I
0: edit out all the junk tracks. I mean, I, obviously that that's an obvious move. But I uh
1: that's interesting. Okay. Okay. It would have been it just awesome for like 30 seconds, but it, I think it goes off <laughs> for like a minute 40, you know? Yeah, it's pretty long. And it does set a mood and and once the drums come in, then you're you're sort of into it, right? But it, it may be just a little excessive on that. But eulogy again, uh, a song with you know. A really memorable, emotional tie to it. This is one where the lyrics play a huge role. No doubt about it. That was That's my second choice is Eulogy. T, what's your next?
0: That would certainly be an honorable mention choice for me. Uh, definitely the song that I uh, liked the best on Anima for many, many years. Mine is the aforementioned Opiate. And I already talked about it. So I'll throw it back to you. Nub. What's three?
1: Three for me is going to be The Grudge. Which we'll talk about very soon. It's it's easily one of my favorite Tool songs. And again, you know, think about like opening tracks. Like Tool, just the masters of how to open an album. Even yeah. *Fear Inoculum*. I love the opening title track to that record. But *Stinkfist*, Vicurious, *The Grudge*, and uh, *On Undertow*. The opener, uh, uh, what was it? *Intolerance*. *Intolerance*. Do 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 do. You know, they just really knew how to open a record and. And the garage is a great example, but we'll talk about it very soon.
0: Indeed. Uh, my third comes off of 10,000 days and this is the, I guess it's, I, I'm going to put it as one song, but it's the wings for Marie, uh, 10,000 days, a duo, which is kind of a part one, part two. Um, I think it clocks in total around 18 minutes, 17 or 18 minutes when you listen to them collectively, which you kind of have to, you know, you can't really take those individually, but this is an incredible um emotional piece I mean this is Maiard singing about his mother who had died um a couple of years uh before the the records release and obviously there's a lot of lyrical content on ten thousand days about this very special relationship you can tell that he had with his mom and um boy it's a it's a piece that gets me i mean it really does he emotionally and musically the energy of it 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 has ebbs and flows and and it has you know variations and in tempos and volumes. And boy, I, I just think it's a really kind of masterful piece from those guys. Those first handful of tracks on 10,000 days are really incredible. You know, and I think that this is one of the peak moments of it. So
1: nub number two, I'm assuming that you're not done with 10,000 days. <laughs> That's my guess. <laughs>
0: That's fair. Fair assumption. Go ahead. Fair Assumption.
1: <laughs> number two for me is off 10,000 days. And that is the pot. Oh, wow. Top five. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I love the pot. It's like, so sometimes you got to just be reminded tool can like write a song, Yep, you know, and it's just like when prog bands write pop songs There's something intriguing about it, intriguing enough to really pay attention. Just like if a pop band wrote a prog piece, you'd, you'd pay attention. So I like the fact that they stepped out of this, an album that's, you know, a lot of people would say lateralis is their most prog metal. 10,000 days is, a, is right there. You yeah. know, how do you, how do you say that that's far behind in that way? Yeah. And you kind of need and you kind of need it at that point.
0: I mean, you're if you think about the first four tracks of that album, you're like, you know, either like in tears or you're like, I I mean, it's a pretty intense first four tracks on that record. And the pot kind of levels it out a little bit, gives you a little bit of uh, pop sensibility, uh, some upbeatness. Some nice groove. It's obviously a pretty clever, kind of humorous lyric. I feel like that again, typical thoughtful tool. They're kind of saying, "Boy, if we have one more intense song on this, we're just gonna, <laughs> we're just gonna destroy people." So you know, I I think it comes at a very important time on that record, and that's great that it makes your top five.
1: But you know, and it's always a thing where before we start thinking of the pot as you know, she loves you. Yeah. 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 Like this is still the song that goes, you know, and I mean, it's got yep. some super proggy elements to it. But exactly. It yeah. feels poppy compared to, to your point, the rest of the album, but I, yeah, i love love it.
0: Well, anytime tool goes four four, either on lateralis or 10,000 days or for inoculum, you're like, Wow, they, you know they they really sold out in this section. You know, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> They Just yeah, it's, it's so rare that they go four beats per measure that you know it almost kind of startles you when it happens. Totally, totally. Well, next on my list, number two, is the uh, title track for this album, Lateralis. So I'll leave it there. Ooh, I did we... not know. I yes, sir. Did yes. not expect that. That's a real curveball, T. <laughs> well, we'll get to it. So I won't. Uh, I won't
1: dive into it too hard. What do you got as your number one, Nubs? What's topping the list? My number one, and like all these, it could be maybe with the exception of the pot. It could be my number one tool song, and that is Schism. And I don't care that it was on the radio and like you can call it a hit, whatever. But it's it's. It's an absolutely incredible piece of music. And the way that the parts were put together, the composition of it, it showcases each of the band members in a very ideal way. It's got that Justin Chancellor bass thing going on the entire way. It's well paced, it's adventurous, it's emotional, sounds amazing live. I mean, I would, you know, to the point of what we said on the last choice, this song reproduced live and they they play the video on the big screen behind them it's just it's yeah. stunning It's yeah, absolutely it's a, stunning
0: it, it's an experience no question t what is your numero uno mine is jambi and that yep. is uh <laughs> that's what I thought. it's the, probably the one you saw coming for a bit but uh you know a, incredible song incredible intricacies uh within uh, a song that you can listen to every day and and find something new find something different that's the beauty of tools music to me is It would be, um, you know, some of the early stuff can get a little tiresome. I mean, there are certainly some tracks on undertow and anima where they can wear you out a little But from lateralis on. I don't think there's anything that you get sick of because there's so much intricacy. There are so many things to take notice of. And I've always found that with Jambi. It's just, you know, it's almost like I could listen to it right now and hear something new or hear or have something else to try and figure out in your head or, or to try and figure out what they were doing from a timing standpoint or a rhythmic standpoint or whatever it may be. So
1: it's probably my number six. It was on the list and it just (laughs) just barely didn't make it.
0: Yeah. Tough, tough one. I mean, there are a lot of tough ones to leave off. I mean, 46 and two is hard to leave off and uh, another song from this record, the patient for me is a tough one to leave off. So yeah, it was Hooker with a the
1: penis was yeah. Was Hooker with a
0: penis. Too. I mean, yeah. it's like, these are, these are really hard songs to not include in your top five, but let's get away from the difficulty of a top five tool list and into the record letter. Alice, let's put the needle on it, buddy. well you said it best nubs these guys uh sure know how to start off an album and obviously for a record like this uh you know getting it off to not just a good start but the appropriate start was likely especially important and and boy they hit the right marks very often in their recording career and i think they did so here as well with the grudge Now, Nubs, uh, I don't think anyone should be expected to just play one section from a few of these songs. So there, there, there are going to be a few moments here where uh, uh, a few selections here where I'm going to just go ahead and give you, uh, you know, a couple of sections because it's basically impossible. The Grudge is a very sectioned song, just like uh, the other tool selections. And here's another part that I wanted to play from the middle real quick. So it's always a little tricky with these guys because, you know, obviously their song structure is typically n- non-traditional. You know, it's not we're not talking about a lot of verse chorus verse activity here. But, you know, those are kind of, I think, two of the the highlight sections from The Grudge. Everything's based in five. So we talked about it with Vicarious and, and you see this trend throughout Lateralis in, in quite a few spots. Uh, Certainly in the first two tracks where it's all based in five. Now, to the common ear, you know, some people may notice this, some people may not. But, you know, typically, you know, pop songs or rock songs are in a, you know, four beat measure or they're in a waltz. So they're either in four and three obviously, you know, nubs five beats per measure is not unique to you and your ear being into a lot of prog music and these things. And this is not a new concept, you know, the yes. And Genesis and plenty of other more experimental, you know, sort of mathy prog rock bands, you know, had, had been doing this for, you know, a couple decades but they really carved out kind of a niche here of utilizing fives and sevens and nines and some of these unique uh, time signatures fairly often in their music. And and they certainly get that off to a start here in the first two tracks on lateralis working within this, uh, this range of fives.
1: It's glad you played the second clip and here's why. Do you remember when uh, we were younger and we used to watch like uh, golf videos? It's fitting. We're talking about golf because the, Open oh, you mean like the Mirrorfield Village uh, highlight yeah. videos, the highlight videos, and like the Jack Nicholas videos. Sure, so, yeah, there there was a moment where Jack Nicholas is talking about a hole at Augusta. I think it was, I don't know, on the front nine. I can't remember, but where he says it is my favorite shot in all of golf. You know, <laughs> you and I have always like. He's referenced. talking about Pebble
0: Beach. There was a certain oh, Pebble uh, Beach, yeah. And of course, like you know, it, you have to put your ball in the middle of the fairway to get to his favorite shot in all of golf which I mean, most people can't do. So he's just like, yeah, this is my favorite shot in all of golf. All you have to do is hit a perfect drive. And you'll like Bust get it, it
1: 330 down the middle. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So any, he, and he makes this big deal about it. And they put it up on the screen. You know, my favorite shot in all of golf. That moment that you played in the second clip is my favorite moment in all of tool. Oh, wow. When yeah. in the grudge, when it all powers in, you know, cause they're teasing that riff. They, they are the masters. They are the masters of the tease. And then the pullback and then the tease and the pullback and then the tease and then explode. You know, they just build tension better than any band, I think, in rock history. And that's a great moment. You're just dying for what happens to happen. I love that moment. It's just the whole song comes in and like the album has officially started. You know, it's similar to
0: Vicarious, which obviously would come five years later on 10,000 Days, but you get to the end of track one and you already feel like you've been in like a, through a war. I mean, it's like, Oh, that was only one song. I mean, cause the outro of this is extremely powerful. You know, it's a real kind of wow moment when this, once this thing wraps up and you have those offbeat vocals and those kind of, uh, panting kind of noises that Maynard's making there toward the end that are offbeat. I mean, it's a tremendous track one. And afterwards, you, you definitely, uh, feel like you've been kind of hit over the head. Now, uh, track two, eases into it, but man, you get a lot of intensity here as well. And in uh, another track that's sort of based in five as far as beats per measure and sort of uh, the continued uniqueness there, and that is track two, The Patient. So again, it kind of, you know, you come off the grudge and it's, you know, eases you into it the first couple minutes, boy, by by this point though, you're, uh, <laughs> you're obviously leaning into it pretty hard. Here's another section, uh, uh toward the back middle. So again, up to your point, just building that tension and then sort of <laughs> letting it loose. They, they loved playing this song live. And I don't know that it was one where, you know, you'd consider it a fan favorite at their shows. But man, you could tell that the real Tool fans were, were very pleased to hear this one. I think it's a real high point of the album. And it can be argued that there are several, but you know, playing with these off beats and accents during the middle section, but it stays in in five beats all throughout. Really good, Danny Carey here. I mean, you know, he's an interesting drummer, and I I definitely want your take on it, Nub. But as the resident drummer on the old podcast here, of course. But you know, he's not a groove machine. He he's he's a little when you watch him live, he's actually kind of herky jerky. But the power and the touch and the creativity is, uh, is elite, you know, uh, within rock drummers and a a guy that probably doesn't get talked about enough or, or put in the proper category enough.
1: Yeah, you're right. I mean, he's doing a lot of the sounds he's coordinating a lot of the sounds that people hear, but don't know where it's coming from using electronic drum pads and things like that. He does shine on this song. There's no question about it. And I, I think this is a standout, track on lateralis it, it's maybe not quite as maffy as what we'll get later in the album his groove is unique it's there i mean he does play with groove there's no doubt about it but it's a sure. different kind of groove it just hits different beats in different ways and he likes to mess with the listener quite a bit especially in the middle of the the measure so in beats two and four he's always doing these weird things you know
0: where do you uh, think he ranks all in all nub i mean if you if you were to really put him up
1: there i mean do you think he's do you think he's top tier? I mean, do you think he's elite? He's definitely elite. There's no doubt about it. There's just some clubs in his bag that you've never seen. You know, you got to see Neil Peart like play standard rock songs early in Rush's career, and they'd sprinkle him in. And even later, you heard him more as a metal drummer. And then, of course, you heard him just master the prog element of being Rush's drummer. So it was nice to hear him do a lot and to master a lot. And that's. That's probably a leg up that some of the greats have on Danny Carey's. You just kind of never heard him play simpler. I'm not sure if he could play twist and shout, you know, the way that Ringo did. And that's part of being a drummer. You know, I'm not sure that he could play a Foo Fighters song like Taylor Hawkins can in in, in the same way. And, And I'm not saying that everyone needs to be all things. What I am saying is that what Danny Carey does is pretty narrow. It's very unique and He's got his own voice as a drummer, which is all you ever want. But I I think that voice could be a little too singular to truly call him one of the greats. But no doubt he's elite. No doubt. Well, let's get to the
0: smash single. Flatter Alice here with Schism. It's kind of impossible to just like, I mean, we're both just kind of sitting here, you know, in front of our microphones. It's, uh, I don't know if you found that difficult. I wanted to get up and break something. Um, but you know, <laughs> yeah. I, and by the way, Nub, you know, who says that a waltz can't be a rock and roll hit? Huh?
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The waltz. It's,
0: yeah, it's, I mean, you don't, obviously when you hear this, it doesn't scream waltz. Um, but, but it is, it's in, it's in three, fourth route and throughout threes and sixes, you know, really throughout. So, um, and they were able to, to obviously make it the most commercial, uh, song on the uh, entire record. It's sectioned out in a unique format. It is not a traditional song format. It's kind of more of this sort of trilogy structure, which you often get, uh, with these guys, but, uh, Uh, And and the section we just heard actually only happens once, you know. But it's one of those, it's one of those areas where again, just this thoughtfulness of not wanting to, even if you got something good, you don't want to overcook it or overhook it, right? You kind of put it in the spot where it treats the piece the way it needs to be treated, and then you leave it there. And and, and, at at almost seven minutes, though, Nubs, this was an impressive radio hit
1: and and a big song for the band. Just incredible, mind blowing to think that this was not just on the radio, but a radio hit, right? It really is pretty incredible, but it's just, it's so well constructed. You know, the the beginning is captivating. The ending is very dramatic, but what's going on in the middle is just, it's the completion of the puzzle. Maestro, great job choosing the clip because I think that's the most powerful part of the song. It's sort of the bridge, like you mentioned. I mean, how do you classify these sections? But And, and the whole, again, lyrically, just this whole thing of the pieces fit, you know, and that whole idea. Yeah, it's it It ends up being catchy unintentionally. So and I think that's why Schism was a hit, because, you know, lyrically, it, it had some catchiness to it. You could you could sort of walk around and say, oh, pieces fit, you know, and it's got that repeat thing going on near the end. It's
0: a very optimistic song lyrically, you know, I kind of touched on it earlier. Um, but, you know, it's it's this aggressive, intense uh, musical piece. But, yeah, the lyrically, at least what I'm gathering from it is. That one that's uh, you know about sort of collaboration and about connections and about um, hopefulness and it's interesting the way it kind of you know almost butts heads with the the piece musically, but I think that's part of what makes it all work. Well, we get to a two parter here and, and you saw this uh, you know fairly often with the band uh, but it's it's more of kind of a, a, a calm intro that then takes you into uh, sort of the main track. So this is the shortest musical piece on the record uh, which really serves as an intro to the next one this is parable so again just something a little bit more on the calmer side and obviously uh you know when they played this live and i think for most tool fans, you would never really listen to one without the other, but it takes you into uh, the second and sort of main section of this track, which is Parabola. Pretty, uh, Pretty classic sort of trademark tool sound there. And it's a straightforward 4-4. So we talked earlier about how unusual sometimes that can sound when these guys go in a more traditional time signature. But unusual for the album that you're in a straightforward 4-4. It's it's the simplest song by far. I mean, this could have been on Undertow. This could have been on Anima. So I think Parabola is really kind of stripping things down to something that's a little bit more basic. Nob, what do you think of this one as far as the lead-in? Of Parable and then sort of this kind of driving, uh, more simple nature of Parabola.
1: It's going to sound like a hot take, but it isn't. I actually like Parable better than Parabola. Oh, okay. You know, they could have extended Parable into something that would have been more interesting. At Parabola, you know, they insist on playing it live every time I've seen them since this album came out. And to me, it's a <laughs> beer song. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan. And it's not because in four, four and like a little bit simpler rhythmically, it's just because I really don't care for where it goes in what you might consider the chorus section when it kind of goes down. I mean, it builds and builds and Adam Jones is doing that cool guitar thing. And then it just never takes off. It never, it doesn't have that explosion that most tool songs have. So this is, if we did a bottom five tool songs, this would easily be in it. I'm just not a huge Mm -hmm. fan. And they, they insist on playing it live.
0: I'm kind of with you on that actually. Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, I think it's good. It's a, it's a little bit of a reset on the album. I, I think, I think the parable section, the quiet section is actually pretty nice and you sort of do need that. I mean, again, after the grudge, the patient and schism, you need to regroup a little bit. And and they were always pretty good at that from a sequencing standpoint. Um, it's okay. You know, I think it's okay. I I agree with you live. But, you know, it takes you into a song that that probably is anything but a beer song live. This is one that, you know, hardcore Tool fans, you can tell, loved hearing live. And it's a song that, you know, for a decent period of time, you were hearing fairly regularly uh, with the unmistakable, you know, drum intro from Danny Carey. And, you know, I guess you could get a beer on this one. And the good news is you'd keep your head on your body because typically this one literally uh will blow your head off your body when you see it live. It's pretty intense here with ticks and leeches. Yeah, this is just one. I remember we were, um, we were at that show in Toledo at the, uh, was it like a minor league hockey arena or something? In, yeah, in, yeah, in Toledo, Ohio, and and they played "Ticks and Leeches" and everyone just lost their minds. I mean, it's one of, it's definitely one of those that always seemed like kind of a, a fan favorite, like a fan ap- appreciated song that wasn't as you know sort of mainstream for their more casual fans. But boy, the Tool army really uh, unites when they pull out "Ticks and Leeches." live. And obviously, and it's a and some great drum work, particularly in the intro from Carrie.
1: Sound wise, it, it, to me, it's the lone throwback to like the undertow sound. And obviously it, it explores more, you know, proggy elements in terms of sections, but like the section you just played it that you could have told me that was off undertow and it's a little more thickly produced than the album undertow, but still it's the same idea. So every once in a while, the band would kind of revert back to some of its originality. Not, not, uh, often because they were always looking forward, but sometimes they just throw back to kind of where they started from. And that's what this song has always meant to me. I do remember when they played it in Toledo and it was, uh, it was a blockbuster for sure. You know, it definitely brought the house on luck. Luckily our heads were, uh, still intact. Afterwards.
0: Yeah. We, we kept them on our body, but barely, barely. Here's another one that, uh, they love playing live and, You can certainly see why we're on the title track here, Lateralis. Spiral
1: Spiral Spiral Spiral
0: Spiral out. Nubs, does this one cause you to spiral out when you hear it or uh what do you think of the title track here I think it's one of Tool's best songs
1: Well you know maybe now is the time to at least reference the Fibonacci sequence right Yes, yes absolutely this yeah. is the song I that, thought you'd bring that up yeah this is the math it, it's it's very tool like and then it's also a little bit untool like to create such a formula right and to work around a formula cuz clearly their music is not formulaic but you know they came across this obscure mathematical uh Deal with which is called the Fibonacci sequence, and then and I don't know what it is, it's something to the extent of you know one, 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 three, three, five, seven, seven, whatever. And they followed that pattern when they wrote this song. So, that this song, if you look at you know the the measures and the beats and things like that, it follows this Fibonacci sequence, which you know, kind of cool, kind of interesting, a little formulaic. And uh, I think what they did around it though is cool. I mean, there are some great sections to this song. Have you ever seen them do this one live too?
0: Yeah. It's, it's quite an experience. And, yeah, um, and you know, there's, a, it's pretty intricate. I mean, you know, the, the, the mainframe is sort of in a waltz, I think based on six and the verses are in five. So you get a lot of differential here on, you know, making kind of some of these unique time signatures work together, even though they're in different sections, they still blend. Together in interesting ways, and, and it's a fairly simple song structure. You know, this is as close to a, a sort of verse-chorus-verse type uh, of an approach as you'll get on Lateralis, but obviously coupled with some very, very intricate, complex um, approaches. To your point about the what is it, the Feb- Fibonacci? I say that right?
1: Uh, that's how. That's how I'm saying it doesn't mean that it's right.
0: Yeah, must you be know, Italian. You know fragile must be italian uh (laughs) we
1: close out with the
0: uh what is really kind of a um a trilogy here and and one that i'm interested to get your thoughts on And, and so we'll take it kind of in all three parts the first is disposition couple things that are notable here. I mean obviously, again, you're coming off of Lateralis, which is a pretty intense song and you know bringing things down a little bit here for for part one of this, I think trilogy the of, of what you're getting here at the end. it's it's pretty calm, it's pretty short, you know, this is uh, four and a half minutes. This is not meant to be something that's really drawn out. And I think what defines this ending trilogy of these three tracks is really you're getting into this tribal beat. Uh, and and sort of this tribal vibe that obviously Carrie was very interested in and brought to the table and obviously had the skill set to do it. Chancellor's playing chords throughout the entire song. Adam's kind of working this digital delay and Maynard is in his lower tier of vocals, very calm, more soothing kind of vocals. There's no screaming in this song. It's meant to be pretty atmospheric here on part one of this kind of three song run at the end.
1: They're playing with atmospheres here for sure. They're intentionally drawing things out. It's almost like with Lateralis, they were able to say, you know, we showed the flash, we showed the skill. Now we can end the album on on more of a mood setting idea. And it's very, very moody, you know, the, the way they conclude the album for sure.
0: Yeah, indeed. Part two is the longest piece on the album. This is just over 11 minutes with Reflection. We'll hit you with two parts on this one. I, obviously, you know there's some effects going on here, so they're getting into some kind of more layered stuff that you'll uh, that you didn't really need at, at a lot of points during the album. But obviously, on this one, you know you're getting some of those keyboard and sort of digital layers uh, within. Let's get to sort of toward the end of reflection here. So it kind of picks up the steam there and uh, has a great ending, great outro, really, really good guitar work from Adam Jones as it takes you to the end. You know, th- this one has a lot. There's a lot of effects on Maynard's voice, which, you know, he would do from time to time with the blow horn and, and the distortion and some of those things. But really throughout all of Reflection, you could tell they wanted to give Maynard a certain vocal sort of vibe and treatment to kind of go along with this, uh, this sort of tribal sound and vibe, which, you know, kind of continues from the previous track. Uh,
1: what do you think of reflection? I really like the synthesizer use, you know, that the way that those kind of weave in and out of the song. And again, they, they they pull those off live. I think Maynard has a box in front of him that sometimes he does some of those, uh, sound effects and noises with, which is very cool. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Yeah, and I agree with you vocally. I've always liked when he plays with vocal effects too. I think that he, you know, like everything Tool's done, it's always been tasteful. It's always been thoughtful, and there's always been a lot of intention behind it versus just trying to use it to cover up something or or whatever. So, you know, it's dangerous to say this is a prog guy. It's a little long, just because it, it it's not as adventurous as the previous stuff. But I do love the mood. I love the atmosphere. I love the drumming it's kind of the right way to end it. I mean, you can't just end the album on like more just insane math rock, right? Like <laughs> it's cool that they sort of teased out maybe what was to come in the future, two albums later, because this, again, this sounds like something off fear inoculum. It really does to me, you know, it's got that vibe to it. So, yeah.
0: And it's the last track with, with Maynard's vocals and it needs to be said. I mean, he has an incredible voice. I mean, in live, oh, yeah. he sounds amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, this, this is, you know, this is not a studio hack here that can only scream and can only uh, sing softly and can only be everywhere in between uh, when in a studio setting. I mean, his his vocals live, which do not demand a lot of treatments and those type of
1: things, are really incredible.
0: It's one of the great things about this band when you see him.
1: It is. He's he look. He's an excellent singer, and he also makes a great hundred dollar bottle of wine.
0: Yeah, if you're lucky. Let's close it up with an instrumental here in in part, sort of part three to round out this trilogy at the end in Triad.
1: I get it, Triad. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Right. Yeah,
0: indeed. And, and, you know, obviously, you know, you continue that that tribal vibe that you're getting uh, in the first two tracks and the beginning of this one to just this big kind of climactic thing, which obviously we've noted the band was so good at. Here's kind of the way it rounds out at the end. pretty sweet ending there. And Adam Jones really comes through in the last two songs here. You know, I think reflection and triad is where you really see, you know, him kind of, um, step up because really throughout the remainder of the album, you know, it's the, it's, <laughs> it's the Danny and Chancellor show, uh, in many ways. So it's good to hear Adam kind of, you know, come on strong there at the end, really cool instrumental way, I think, to close this one out. And I don't, I don't know how many always make it all the way to triad as they're plowing through lateralis and it's 79 minutes. Um, but, but if you make it to the end there, it's a pretty satisfying way to close it.
1: It is extraordinary to think about this album being 79 minutes long. I mean, the, the work they put into it, the thought they put into it, yes, it's a long journey, but it's so extensive. And I think the beauty of lateralis is that for years you can discover it. You know, you can hear things in it you never heard before and just its sheer length allows for, you know, how many, how many opportunities do you really have to sit down for an hour and 20 minutes and listen to something top to bottom. So over time, the thing will age well naturally, right? Because there's so many things to explore. You know, I'm, I'm way more familiar with the top half of the album than I am with the second half, but the second half listening to it now almost feels like listening to a new album. And that's, that's a good place to be, you know? Yep. Yep. All right. Now, did it matter? Lateralis. What do you say? Yeah, lateral has definitely mattered. I, I think it, it, as we kind of, if we can bring the show back full circle, it was the last truly experimental thing to ever be this popular. You know, I can't think of anything that's come out after that's gotten to this level. Now, you know, you've had a few bands come out and do different things and seek some popularity, but nothing to the extent where it was played on mainstream radio and, and part of the, the sort of pop culture of the moment like Tool was in the early 2000s. I love that. Even even more than the album, I love the fact that the album was popular, which is ironic during an era where everyone, you know, hated it when their favorite band got popular. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world when Tool got popular. You know, you were sort of rooting them along because they did everything the right way and they didn't try to do anything commercial, which is exactly what made them commercial. And, And that's what's cool. You know, if you can find success by being yourself in any avenue. You root for that. And so it, it mattered because it's the end of an era. It's the end of something this different being this popular. And so for that reason it matters. T what did it, did it matter.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I love and, and we've talked about it with a few episodes here, but I love when bands evolve with a certain record and show you that they're here to stay with a certain record and do so in a way that's not Hey, we're here to stay because we're going to be ultra commercial, or we're here to stay because we're going to keep running the same play and executing the same formula, but we're here to stay because we're doing it our way. And I think letter Alice is just that. And the fact that they were able to couple doing it exactly the way they wanted to and needed to, and getting the benefit of commercial success and creative car blanche for the end of time, which tool will have they accomplished it. I mean, this band has created an exceptional amount of demand. I mean, you know, putting out records every five to 10 years and, uh, you know, all, all the things we've seen out of this band in the last, you know, 25 years, you know, one of the things that they've successfully done is they have created a, a loyalty and, and a demand for their approach and their material that's Really unmatched. And I think Ladder Ellis was a big turning point there of saying, hey, we could put out records like Anima All Day if you want us to, but we're gonna pivot to something that's more experimental, more proggy, and we're gonna do it our way. And the fact that they were able to generate more respect and more demand from something like this, I think was a real signal. To other bands at the time, to industry people at the time, to, you know, make sure that you're giving bands creative room to do what they do, because it can work. If it's genuine and it's true to their skill set and their kind of artistic need and expression, and you've created that loyalty and you've created that demand, you know, it's gonna work. And and Lateral has certainly worked. And and I think it worked for all those reasons. All right, Nub, where are we putting this one, buddy? On the final cut on the turntable in the collection, collecting dust, or are you putting laterals in the for sale bin? I don't
1: know. What are you doing, bud? <laughs> Definitely not for sale bin. I've got a collecting dust just because of its sheer length, top to bottom. There's uh, tracks on Ooh. it that will live on forever. Oh, wow. okay. But to be, I mean, listen, to pretend like, I seek out top-to-bottom listens of this album for everything I just said, right? The, the beauty of the length is that it'll be long standing. The detriment of the length is that from a top-to-bottom album, am I listening to it frequently? No. And, you know, do I feel like in a, in a standard record collection, like, is, is this vital enough to be in there? I do, but it'd be collecting dust. I mean, I, I just, you know, pulling it out, listening to it top-to-bottom is quite a task. But again, the tracks on it, it's the schism, the grudge, the patient, like these things can and will always be listened to. But, you know, lateralis and in, in the back half of the album and parable, these are not things that I think are just vital listens that you need to check in with regularly. So I've got lateralis collecting dust. He what do you got?
0: I love when you surprise us. I, I love when you keep us on our toes. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's on the turntable, man. And this is a pretty easy choice for me. I mean, I think that while they've put out some really important work in their entire catalog, I think this is their best record top to bottom. I think it was extremely ambitious and perhaps, uh, you know, with any band in kind of the history of rock, you got to put it up there in terms of its ambition and in terms of its signaling that this is a band that's really evolving to a unique point. And, uh, and I just love albums like that. You know, I wish there wasn't the junk, the noise junk tracks and all those type of things. And, you know, maybe it didn't have to be 79 minutes long all in all. So I don't, I don't think it's perfect, but, um, but it's on the turntable. There are too many strong points here. Uh, there, there are too many adventures here to be anything, but in my opinion, so it's an important band. And I think it's, Not just the most important record from said band, but I also think it's top to bottom their best. You know, there are moments on any Tool album where you have ebbs and flows, but this one top to bottom, I think, demonstrates, you know, a certain amount of strength that was uh, very special and unique at the time. And even 20 years later, uh, you can go for quite a ride as you uh, knife through these songs and, and in many cases still try 20 years later to uh, figure them out. All right, Nub, let's wrap this up, baby, with a little bit of
1: head, They are fighting. Nub, what do <laughs> you got, buddy? I played a little golf yesterday, and I had uh, you know, my playlist going, so I'm just going to choose three songs that uh, came on while I was golfing. I had good golf songs here. One first is... You, how did you hit them, buddy? Did you hit them long oh, terrible, and straight? No. Well, I hit them okay. I couldn't putt. Just <laughs> horrible horrible putting yeah. terrible but uh the high point of the round was probably these songs which was uh <laughs> first was off an album called 1984 and the song is i'll wait by of course van halen yeah beauty one of our favorite van i halen remember songs. we
0: both put that when we did the van halen uh, top five in the 5150 episode i remember we both kind of unexpectedly put i'll wait uh, in our top fives agreed i was a little
1: surprised that, that you liked that one as much as i did so um second would be off the album navy blues the song chester the molester by sloan and yes. third would be yeah totally and then third would be ashes to ashes by faith no more i remember hitting a good shot when that song was in my ear
0: so. <laughs> <laughs> t what is in your hair three good choices buddy hey the first one for me is by uh, a guy named robert palmer and uh robert know, palmer tape we all know robert palmer right yeah exactly good good patrick bateman there um it reminded me i, I forgot that robert palmer died like was it like 10 years ago 15 years ago just like yeah, had a heart attack suddenly it was yeah, yeah. really sad was he cool I, I i need to go back and see the revisit some robert palmer interviews
1: was, oh, was he, like he a, cool oh my he was dude he was like the coolest guy in the world was he oh yeah First of yeah. all, you probably don't realize he's British. A lot yes. of people thought he was American because Correct. Yeah. of the way he broke. And he is like the smoothest cat. You know, he, <laughs> he's exactly what you would want from Robert Palmer. You should go, You should definitely look up some interviews. He's, he's an awesome guy.
0: Yeah, I will. That That's good to hear. Because, I mean, all the stuff with like the power station and then the stuff with like the gals and the video, and, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know. you know, like you could tell that he was being funny like you could tell that he was like it was a bit of a shtick right i mean this was not i don't think he was he was into
1: the ladies i mean his early albums you know yeah yeah but have you ever heard his, his early work like sneaking sally through the alley is one of his first albums his early work is Oh funky it, as hell. Yeah. I mean looking for great. clues. I mean well yeah. clues is yeah, clues is yeah. a masterpiece for sure. But even for before sure. clues, yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, this is one of his pop songs from the 80s. It's called Hyperactive. It's a uh,
1: Oh, I know. Yeah, <laughs> that one's good. Yeah. We're going into
0: hyperactive. Do you think, do you think <laughs> Bill Pullman meant, do you think he lost his line on that? Or do you think he meant to say hyperactive?
1: The half smile afterwards would would signify that that was ad-libbed.
0: I think he flubbed his line and they left it in there personally.
1: But I think so. And he gets the, the the half smile afterwards is just, yeah.
0: it's like yeah, one of the best parts. It of would have been movie. kind of a Mel Brooks move to just leave it in there after he screwed it up. Yeah, right? totally. The second is a, a, a new track from uh, obviously one of my favorite bands and a band we've talked about a little bit and that's Starflyer 59. And they just put out a single called life in bed, which is pretty good. And the third Go back to the '80s a little bit. This is a this is a song by Stacy Lattisaw called "Let Me Be Your Angel," and uh, that's, uh <laughs> that's
1: such a pick. <laughs> Let me be
0: your angel. I mean, it's just, oh, it's a, make you cry if you're not careful. You know, it's
1: a, that one probably came right after the Vitamin C, the graduation song. As hey, know, hey, you listen, lo- you love that one.
0: You can trash a lot of bands out there, but don't be trashing Vitamin C. All right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nubs, no, good stuff, buddy. Uh, it probably took us uh, longer than we thought to talk about this band, but uh,
1: a really uh, cool album to get your take on and uh, and enjoyed it. Enjoyed it. Absolutely. I'm going to get back to my mathematics. And I'll tell you what, T, that was episode 51, right? <laughs> episode 52. You better get your legs trained because we're going to be running up that hill. Uh, here on episode 52 so get spoiler ready, ready. get ready
0: spoiler buddy. spoiler alert all right well before we run up that hill we will uh, we will just walk away from episode 51 where we talked about tools lateralis and hopefully your heads out there haven't exploded too hard because sometimes this band can do it to you but hopefully your heads are intact. I know that ours are somewhat and we will see you next week for episode 52 on. Two Twins and an album. Y'all take care. Let me
1: be your angel. Let me be the one for you. Let me be your angel.
0: Two Twins. Uh-huh. 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 Uh-huh.
1: Well, that's about it.
0: That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour.
1: Until then, take it easy.